The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is TheMorganReport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Also, it's good to be with you. It was just over a week ago or so when I asked you if we were going to see $19 silver, and you said it was possible, and we're there. Well, yes, uh, you know, if we go back to what's been a very trying couple of years, especially in the last few months, I looked at the long-term silver chart and I did it for the members and I showed where silver broke out at 555, went up to 840, touched the 555 level, so in other words it touched the breakout point. Then it went up to, I forget the number, 12 something and then, or maybe 15, and it came down and touched the original the breakout point of the 840. And then it went up and hit the $21 level, I remember that. And then it came back down, it came all the way back down and touched like the 840 level, below 9. So what this suggested was that every time it makes a, a massive move up, it comes back down to the previous breakout point. Well, the last breakout point before the move to $48 was around 19 which suggested that it could hit the $19 level, and lo and behold, it did. In fact, I bought some silver at 1883 yesterday. Hmm. I just thought, you know what, enough is enough. I think silver is still a great long-term investment. I was able to lock in at 1883, and I did so. Where, when silver was at its recent high, did you sell it, if in fact you did? Well, when it got up to the $48 level, which is more than two years ago, I called that top very accurately. And at that time, I did hedge. And unfortunately, I didn't hedge long enough. In other words, I should have rolled over my hedges. But yeah, I did think it was a blow-off top for a while. As I looked at it, as time progressed, I thought, yeah, it could probably go two years, perhaps longer. I think we don't have much longer to go, but it's getting a little unbearable. And so, yeah, I did protect my position when it got at that level. And again, could have done a better job of it, but I did do it. In fact, I was doing a workshop in Los Angeles, right by you, Ellis, about the time that we hit that $48 level, and I put out the uh, sell. I didn't sell any physical. I hedged on paper, and I have been buying, and I have bought in the 30s. 
I haven't bought in the 40s, but I did buy in the low 30s, and I've bought in the uh, 20s, and I've bought under 20. So I have been buying along the way. Now at $18, $19 an ounce silver, aren't we seeing 2006 or 2007 levels? I have to go back and look at the chart, but yeah, we're seeing it undervalued as far as all cost in basis. We did a study in the morning report, as you know, as a subscriber. And so, you know, I think you're safe to buy here. It doesn't mean it can't go lower. I think it can go much lower, and I don't think it can stay down much longer. But again, it's, it's getting frustrating for, I think, everyone. And we just spoke either last week or the week before about the cost of getting silver out of the ground and putting it into production. Now, costs have gone up over the last years producing silver. We're nearing the point where some companies can't really afford to produce. And according to the Morgan Report, which I'm a subscriber to, one of these companies is, in fact, suspending their operations one of the companies that you're following. Right. It was one of our speculations. Very high-grade Canadian company. Uh, like the, the geographic area. We like the grade a great deal. We like high-grade. Just had gone into full production. They have a little bit of a debt burden. And we were getting a fair amount of questions. If we get, you know, our paid subscribers are allowed to send in emails to us at this certain level of membership. And we had talked to the company recently, and yet the day that we issued the Morgan Report, which I issued early, which I seldom do, but I'm speaking in Dallas in, in the next couple days. And the day we hit the send button and put it up on the website and issued the uh, release to our members, this company says it's going to go on care and maintenance. And so we have some upset subscribers in that happens. I mean, everyone's pretty tense right now. I mean, any precious metals investor, myself included, I think is pretty hard to stay calm. But uh, nonetheless, it's speculation. If you do what we teach, which means a little, bet a little when a lot and certainly get more than one, have at least five, if not 10, you can be upset, but you shouldn't have gotten hurt too badly. But still, it was a bit of a blindsided. I and mean, we just set on an alert, as you know, because you're on the service that, that provides that alert that just pops up right on your desktop or your laptop and says, hey, uh, David just sent an alert. And they said, because the company had reached production several months ago in full capacity, a little over one month ago, we were as shocked as many of you at this action. Certainly we thought something with this high grade would not be one to cave into what may turn out to be the bottom of the silver market. Yet it did take place. So no excuses. I mean, we stand up when we, you know, make a mistake. I mean, you could say we made a mistake picking this company if you want. I don't think it's a mistake. The asset's still there. They're just saying we have some debt. We're going to just put it on care and maintenance. They just got started, too. So really, since it's just sort of like starting up a race car engine for the Indy 500 and going one lap and saying, you know what, we're not going to do this race and pulling off the track. You don't have a lot to lose at that point. You're out of the game entirely. Whereas if they had gone half the race, you're sort of committed. you got to keep going. So anyway, it happens. I apologize if you want to hear that. I'm not selling mine. We said sell it because it's probably the best thing to do at this point. But since I just have so little in it, I'm just going to keep it. And that way I have to watch it. So evidently some companies that are producing are in a little bit of trouble right now. What about those near producers that are not quite there yet? They may have been financed recently and are in the process of identifying their resource and working on getting it out of the ground. Are they in less danger at the moment? Yeah, you know, I think the safest statement I can make is that I think everybody has a potential jeopardy here. I mean, you look at Barrick. Barrick put out an announcement that they're cutting back staff and they're reducing some of their situations. So that's one of the biggest on the board is Barrick. I'm not favorable to Barrick. In fact, we did a special update on for the members only on a very, what I consider, tenuous situation regarding the Pascalama mine. But 
nonetheless, if Barrick has got problems and then this little startup has problems, I think you have to say from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega. I mean, I think you can look at almost anything and have to have some suspicion. Obviously, common sense prevails. If they're in production, they still have a margin, they're still profitable. There were a lot of factors that pushed up the speculation in this market. The euro crisis, Greece, China, and India's growth. All those things that were there really helped Ascension chug along. They're gone. So why wouldn't gold and silver return to pre-speculation days or prices? Because they're not gone. I mean, this is where we have a difference of opinion. I mean, I think that we're probably in worse shape than we were when we had the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, we might have a temporary betterment here in the United States, but I mean, China's banking system is having all kinds of problems. And if you look at the telltale sign objectively, and what's the telltale sign? It's the debt markets. There's nothing bigger, more important to watch than the bond market. And the bonds, and the United States bonds, the sank-or-sank, stalwart, best investment you can make, in quotation marks, I don't believe that, is the long-term treasury, or the T-note. These are up substantially in interest. They're up like 60% over about a year ago. And so when interest rates go up, bond prices go down, and that's a sign. The more that there's disbelief in the ability of these bonds to be worth what their face value is, the higher interest rates get pushed up. Agreed, they're still very, very low, but they're substantially higher than they were, again, about a year ago. So what that says is the market itself, not the Fed, not the all-powerful, almighty Fed, but the market itself is starting to say, you know what, I don't trust your ability to pay these back as much as I did before. So I don't think that we are out of the situation that caused the safe harbor status of gold. I think it's more of a mad rush by the powers that be to keep the price looking bad for gold because in the situation that I believe we're in, if we were seeing gold prices moving up past the $2,000 level, there would be a mad rush in. See, people love to buy gold at 2000 If it was up at that level right now, they'd be rushing into it. But now that it's really on sale, oh, no one wants it now. They shouldn't have bought it. Why are they getting out of it? I mean, why should you have it? And this is investor psychology. It's a psychological battle as much as anything else. And I've watched it for years. So okay. the stock market's totally illogical. All right, I have no reason to dispute what you just said. I buy it. I also believe that what I said was true. It's more like both sides of the coin are correct as far as I'm concerned. Now, I was watching CNBC the other day last week, and all the pundits were saying that gold is no longer a safe haven. Buy stocks. And that's got to affect the mentality in the U.S., right? Oh, it does, yeah. I mean, first of all, if you look at your average hedge fund, I mean, they're there to make money. So are we. I mean, the Morgan Report, we're going to do something outside of the gold and silver space next month, but I want to get off track here. And they're not making money in gold. They're going to find something that they can make money with. And if it's stocks, it's stocks. And they're going to move out of their positions. And these guys carry big positions. And if a lot of them are kind of herd followers as well. And they'll say, yeah, gold trade is off. We don't want to see gold right now. Get out of their positions and move into the stock market. And I'm not against it. I'm free market. I mean, but what I, my point again is that as far as the risk on, risk off thing, I don't buy that. I don't buy that for being the reason. The reason is more maybe that, you know, stocks are moving and gold isn't, and gold's going the wrong way. That's uh, obviously I'll buy that. But I'm not going to say that the reasons or the fundamental facts for owning gold have gone away. No, no, I disagree with that. Can we put the bull market aside now for two or three years? Yeah, I mean, I when I we first got that high uh, in silver and gold. I mean, first it was silver at 48 in April 2011 and September for gold. And I knew that it would take a while, and I forecast after looking at it a little harder, 
couple years, and we're there, plus some. But I, again, don't think we have much further to go. Obviously, if you haven't been in this market, you have a good opportunity. If you've been in the right sector for a while, you want to buy something low and cheap and undervalued. There's nothing cheaper or more undervalued than these mining companies are, as long as you pick the right ones. And then gold and silver itself. I mean, both are selling pretty much at the cost or a little bit lower than the cost of production. Platinum is another one. I mean, the South Africa produces about 80% of the world's platinum, and I mean, those mines are being devastated. So, you know, if you're a platinum investor, which is, you know, a rare bird, but that's a pretty good investment as well for the longer term. So, you know, and it's diversification. I mean, I don't want to make excuses, but uh, I've never said to anybody you should load up and only have gold and silver. I've done the contrary. Now, some of our readers do, but, you know, I can't control that. But it's never advocated that that's the only sector you should be in. I consider it to be probably the best, most important sector to be in, but only part of your investment portfolio. You know that I spent quite a bit of time in 2011 and the early part of 2012 interviewing someone who you've quoted several times in our broadcast, Jim Sinclair. And Jim, albeit highly educated and skilled in money markets for many years, just got it wrong with his predictions of $2,500 gold and several other benchmarks last year. It is tough. And, you know, you lose a lot of credibility, integrity, and everything else. I mean, again, I've tried my best to, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at where I was at, I thought 26 would hold. I really did in 1550 on gold. I did get a message out to our paid list. Before it crashed, it was obvious just beforehand to me that it was going to go through there. You asked me if 20 you know, would hold. I said, yeah, probably might. You know. I'd, I'd done an, a video before that for our members saying that 19, and you know, we're a little below that. I mean, these commodities hate round numbers. I mean, we could see the bottom already. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it is yet. I have to see more data, but it certainly is close. I think that there's so much capitulation. It's a spike low. I look for that. We see the sentiment is probably as bad as I've ever seen. And these mines are starting to, you know, go on care maintenance, like this one that was on our list. And another one uh, a couple months ago, we had to take off the list. Uh, Casey, Doug Casey's group had that on their list as well. And so we're starting to see signs that are very strong indicators of a bottom, and like the bottom. So I'm hanging in there. I don't see any reason. The fundamentals have changed. I mean, if they had really gone and there really is new prosperity and all kinds of new jobs and people out there that want to work hard have a choice of two or three jobs and they're all high paying and all that was going on, hey, I would admit it. I'd be objective. I'd say, you know what else? You're right. You know, this thing's turned around. You probably should consider doing this or that. But that's not what's taking place. And these banks, you know, are having all kinds of problems still and the debt servicing is becoming more onerous as we, you know, every day. So the fundamentals, again, are strong to be in a position to own gold, and it's basically on sale. I mean, you still see China and India increasing their position. Russia is increasing their position. I mean, India is trying to, to dissuade their population from buying gold, and they're not having anything to do with it. It's like, all right, tax us more or put an import fee on it or do whatever you're going to do. We want gold. <laughs> so it's the east-west mentality. There's a lot of things. I mean, I could go on and on. I think I should stop. Well, there's still a shortage of supply, especially in retail locations in Asia, isn't there? Yes, there's a great demand for physical in the Asian countries. I mean, they have had histories, and they 
know their family history better than most in the West. So they know from their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, the history of what fiat money really does and why it's important to own a real asset. Then that isn't lost on their, the younger population. So when they get money ahead, and they're savers to begin with, they're willing to save in gold. And again, for them, it's on sale. They're happy to buy low. We know that many of these mining companies are going to go away, but the public entities won't. The shells won't. Back in the late 90s, there was a plethora of these Canadian companies on the Vancouver Exchange, as it was called at the time. They were internet concerns, tech concerns, biotech concerns, a variety of enterprises. Are we going to see the sort of sector spread into everything again with some of the same people or players, so to speak? Oh, yeah, you'll see that. I mean, at some point you will, and it's probably already beginning. I mean, there's nothing like a Vancouver promoter. <laughs> They'll find something to do, you bet. Hopefully it's uh, for the greater good. I mean, the free market is all about finding you know, opportunities that are beneficial to not only the shareholders, but also to the public at large. And that's how the, it's determined if the company is really of value or not. Unfortunately, especially in the small stock space, there's a lot of games that can be played. It happens in the big companies, too. I mean, let's not forget WorldCom and Enron and some of these other characters out there. But you got to be careful. Stocks are risky. But no, I think you are, you're correct, Ellis. These shells will go from being a mining company to being a XYZ, you name it, type of stock, sure, that could happen. Well, we look to the Morgan Report to guide us through the coming months so we can potentially profit from all of this. Thank you. We're doing our best. Again, I think that we're going to see the bottom here fairly soon and, and back up. I don't look for a big snapback rally where we're going to see silver and gold just bolt ahead, although I wouldn't rule it out, but it sure isn't active. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to visit with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join me now for a conversation with Stuart Ross, the president of El Tigre Silver Corp. Stu, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Al. It's always good to be here. I've been chatting with David Morgan over the past few weeks, and we've been discussing the cost of bringing silver out of the ground and into production for producing companies and the falling price of physical silver and how at some point it's just not equitable for some of those producers to keep going. Of course, hopefully that's a short-term issue, but I wanted to speak with you, a near producer. How does this affect your business, or is it just business as usual? Well, for us, to a, a large extent, it's business as usual. The economics of our production, when it comes, is still viable at, at the current prices. Uh, I know there are some producers that are a lot closer in margin and have lower grades, and it's obviously it's going to affect them. It's affecting the, the larger producers because they've, in my opinion, they've geared up for $30 silver and $1,600, $1,700 gold. Now that it's not there, they're going to have to cut back. They'll survive, but they're not going to be as profitable, so obviously they have to cut their expenses. So if you were producing right now, what's happening in the market really wouldn't affect you. There's still an overwhelming demand for silver. So in essence, you're probably still very pumped up about what you've got coming in the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're just finishing up a resource and 
We'll have a reserve on our tailings, a resource on the in-situ, and we'll be doing a, a news release on it next week. At this stage in the game, the prices currently still support our going ahead, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, obviously, I'd like it to be 30 bucks. Everybody would be, or higher. It certainly helps and from a cash flow perspective if it is. But we're, we're going to continue to go ahead and uh, just continue to do the work. We've got an enormous resource yet to be defined. We'll have a definition on a small portion of it. So we'll continue, just continue to increase the value of the company. There's no secrets here. It's just hard work. As the prices go down, you got to work a little harder. Well, with an open pit mind, those costs shouldn't rise dramatically. And you've managed to keep your costs down with your background as a bean counter. Yeah, bean counter, if you like. Our costs aren't going to change given the price of silver isn't going to affect our cost. Our cost is going to be what it is. It's uh, low enough so that we can continue to go ahead even given the current prices. As I said, I'd like them to be higher, and frankly, I think they'll come back. It, silver will and gold will find a base at some point. The bullion prices seem to be higher than spot rates now anyway, and I, and I think that's reflective of, of what will happen in the uh, COMEX market. The spot prices will eventually come back and, and meet those uh, bullion prices. You just added a board member, Ernie Elko, who I met while on site at the El Tigre property just a couple of months ago. He hasn't been involved in mining, to my knowledge, in the past. He is now, of course. What was the motivation behind adding him to the board of your company? Well, there's two things. He was with Peter Kiewit and Sons, and Peter Kiewit and Sons have, in fact, as a construction company, built infrastructure for mines. He has been at the very top end of that process, so as we get into construction, contracts and all the rest of the things that go along with construction and production, he'll be a, an enormous help to us in that regard. He's also tied in with our investor group in Edmonton, and will help in that regard as well. So really, you're doing what any responsible management team would do and board members that bring value to the company. Absolutely, and, uh, and Ernie does that for us. As I said, his background in construction, I mean, Kiewit's into, into everything. They build bridges, buildings, uh, but they've also built some mines, and he's been involved in that process, so he'll be uh, an enormous benefit there. He's also um, a very intelligent individual and, and will bring a different perspective to our board than just public company, uh, and I think that'll help as well. Added value, he'll bring added value. Then do you see yourself as a mid-tier producer ultimately? That would be our, uh, our goal. We'll start out small because the risk is less for the small production. But as we move forward, there's rock on the property that we can add to the tailings even as we start the process. It's not going to be included in our calculation of uh, values, but it's there and we will use it. We'll be able to also get some mine rock into the process within 18 months to two years along with the rock that's already there. So the intention is to start out small. We'll likely be around 250 tons per day when we open it. Before the year is out, we'll ramp that up to 400 tons per day, increase the head grade as we bring other material in, and just keep continue to grow the company. The same facility that we're building for the tailings and for some of the uh, existing mine rock, the bottom end of it will serve when we get into open pit, which will be a heap leach process. So pregnant solution from the heap leach will come to the same facility. So basically... Understating and overperforming is always good company policy. Well, always managing expectations is very important. We'll start out small, we'll get a, a good handle on our costs, and then we'll ramp it up. Well, Stu, I appreciate the brief update on your company, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the very near future. Thanks very much, Alice. Always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Stuart Ross, the president of LT Gray Silver Corp, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, as EGRTF. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, 
or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's good to be with you again. Since we last spoke, you released a definitive feasibility study concerning the Dubbo Zirconia project. Would you care to bring us up to date? Yes, certainly. It was a, a fairly lengthy and in-depth study of the project, and we took into account all of the factors and all of the factors affecting the, the rare metal and rare earth industry at this stage. But the fundamentals are we came out with a capital cost of about $990 million, their Australian dollars, I should add, and... Through that, we generate a revenue of about $500 million a year against operating cost of around $200 million a year. So we have a $300 million cash flow per annum. Now, we've only based the initial financial model on a 20-year life, but the resource that we have there is really capable of, of operating for 80 years or even 100 years. So it's a, it's a long-life big resource, but financially, it tended to focus on the first 20 years. So we were very, very happy with that result. It shows how financially robust the project is, and that followed on many years of hard work to show how technically robust the project is. So for about $990 million after three years or so, you've covered the cost of a project with a lifetime of as little as 20 and as much as 100 years with what will bring you a net of about $300 million a year. That seems like a very insignificant investment for the return you're getting, although it's almost a billion dollars, and that's not an insignificant amount. You're completely correct there, and we always recognise that a billion dollars is a lot of money, especially for a small company. But you're right also that the, the financial result will see a capital payback inside four or five years. So it's a very strong project in that sense. But the billion dollars, we've already put in the steps involved to raising that billion dollars. And last year, we appointed two large banks, Credit Suisse and Sumitomo Matsui Bank, to work with us and work with Petra Capital to help us to put the whole financing package together and that process has started and we've allowed 12 months to get that done so this time next year I'd hope to say that we have project approval from the state government and also we have all our financing in place and it's a big task Uh, we certainly recognise that but the strategic value of the project helps that process and by strategic I mean the metals that we will produce certainly have strategic value to a number of countries and I can here single out both Japan and Korea for example a very active looking for alternate sources of supply strategic metals to to what they currently get from China. So there's funding available from sources like that. There's also funding available from other international entities that'll help us put that billion dollars together. Well, really, the risk is low as far as that is concerned, considering you have memorandums of understanding for offtake with at least four industrial entities in Asia. We also, of course, have one with a European metal alloy manufacturer for our niobium output, and and that deal, basically, uh, they'll help us with the technology to produce high-quality ferro-niobium, which they will then use themselves and also sell into the European market. So it gives us a bit of diversity because otherwise uh, all of the product is sort of fundamentally heading into Asia. At this stage, places like Japan and Korea and probably India. Also, we are seeing for the first time quite a bit of interest out of China, which surprised me a little bit because China is a big producer of rare earths and a big producer of zirconium chemicals. And for us to be able to look at selling some of our materials back into China was a little bit of a surprise. But certainly there's a changing set of circumstances in China as well. So it's good to open up other potential markets. 
Well, in previous conversations, you ruled out China, at least for the foreseeable future, but it seems that strategy is changing. It is. As I said before, it was a bit of a surprise, but it came about after one of our marketing guys was in China, and he came back quite enthusiastic about the level of interest. So we have to say we're not changing our tact. We're always looking for places to sell our products, but that was a pleasant surprise. What are some of the uses for zirconium and niobium? Just start with zirconium first of all, because it's a very diverse application. A lot of specialist ceramic applications, and probably the most well-known one is in your car or your vehicle exhaust system. There's a sort of can-looking type object right at the very end of the car exhaust. That's the catalytic converter, which uh, takes out all the nasty gases that are coming out of the engine. And in each of those, there's about a half a kilogram of zirconia ceramic. And you often hear about platinum palladium in that component, but they do forget to tell you there's a, a major zirconia component as well and that's currently about 30 to 40 percent of the whole zirconia market and then there's many other applications in drying agents in paints and other general drying agents ceramic tiles for example zirconia is often used as the glaze and the colouring of a on the top of the tiles and then the final end result is zirconium metal which is the metal that holds the enriched fuel in place in the nuclear reactor because uh, zirconium is the only metal that can withstand the temperatures and the uh, neutron bomb bombardment you get in a reactor. So it's a small but very high value in part of the business. Niobium's a little bit different. It's more focused in probably 90% ends up in the steel industry in some way. Traditionally, niobium steels have been used for pipelines, bridges where you need high strength and low weight. But what we have seen maybe five years or more or so ago, the auto industry started to pick up on the niobium steel. And what it does is a very small amount of niobium, a few dollars worth of niobium in the steel of a vehicle chassis lightens it by about 10%. And that's all that we get all the emissions minimization and fuel efficiencies with the lighter in the vehicle without any loss of strength. They're the two, the broad applications of, of niobium and generally the zirconium industry is an extremely diverse business. But as long as men and women roam the planet, there's going to be a market for automobiles. And let's take a look at China, for instance. That's a market where only 3 in 10 individuals have an automobile with 1.3 billion people and that's rapidly advancing. Your market is endless. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're quite right again for China, and again, India is a... Is a following in very similar path and it's not only the three out of ten but if you look at the size of the populations of both those countries I think China's 1.3 billion and India's 1.1 billion well if you take that percentage you end up with a large large number of automobiles uh, that are going to require a lot of components and that is across the board here it's zirconium niobium and of course all the rare earths that get used in autos these days so if you're going to be a mining company in this market you'd want to be alkane resources wouldn't you well it's probably a pretty good way to put it actually I, I quite like that concept and uh, yeah look we, we do believe we're in, we're in pretty good shape uh, we've got substantial cash resources in the bank we're building and developing our latest gold project which we'll be producing next year and, and having cash flow from that and then following on behind is the very large Dubbo Zirconia project so yeah we would like to believe we're in a very very good position and wait there's more the Tommy Lee gold project that you alluded to I guess compared to the Dubbo Zirconia project it's small but compare that to most other junior gold companies out there and it's not small you're going into production in just a few months again that's correct I mean it's a hundred million dollar investment 
investment that generates around $30 million a year. Current spot prices are gold about $30 million a year. Ten-year project life we see at this stage. Again, absolutely, it's, it's not a big project in any terms, but it's a cash flow. It's, a, it's a, We call it our bread and butter business. It'll sit behind us, sit behind everything else we do. That cash coming in enables us to keep doing other things and obviously keep the company going, doing all the things it has to do corporately. Also, to keep exploring. I mean, you know, the blood of any mining company is, is having a project pipeline, bring new projects on the stream. We're not talking large amounts of money, but just enough for these projects to keep flowing on. Once Dubbo's up and running in, say, four or five years' time, maybe there's another project, another gold or a gold copper project sitting behind it, ready to come on stream as well. So that all leads us to sort of the concept of a large cash flow business uh, that'll enable us to generate profits and, again, hopefully pay dividends, and that's always been the strategy. So Tollingly sort of is the building block of the foundation of which the big projects like Dubbo and other projects will follow on. This sounds like nothing but good news during the entire course of this interview. The caveat is the market right now. It's tough all over. Rare earths, rare metals, gold. It's just been a struggle. But yet your position much better than 95% of the other junior miners right now. What are you saying to your current shareholders and your potential shareholders keeping in mind that you yourself are a shareholder. Yeah, again, very good observation. And, you know, we would currently describe ourselves as being in the in the quadruple whammy. I mean, we fit in. We're a junior resource company, which have been hammered in the market. We're a gold company. We've been hammered in the market. We're a rare metal, rare earth company. We've been hammered in the market. I think I'm not sure what the fourth one is now. But, yeah, generally there's just a whole range of negative sentiment and when the market gets into this negative sentiment even having really good projects having the cash in the bank doesn't really seem to account for much so all we say to our shareholders is look hang in there we're very comfortable and confident things will change probably not this year but maybe as we roll into 2014 and then for potential investors is to look at it and say well you know right now the, the company's got a market capitalization about 170 million dollars we've probably got 120 million dollars in cash in the bank you know, a new gold project coming on stream it is significantly undervalued i guess that you know the judgment that people have to make is when do you buy i mean i can't put a time on that other than to say i think over the next couple of months is a very good time that uh, for, for buying opportunity i just can't believe the price will continue to go down but in this market you just don't know it's interesting because most people buy in when the market is high. It's just the nature of the Correct. human condition. Yeah. But the smartest and the wealthiest people, they get in when no one else is really looking. That's exactly right. If we all had that ability to pick the bottom of the market, we'd probably all be retired and living in some exotic tropical island somewhere. So I haven't quite mastered that yet. But it's an interesting thing to be able to try and predict where the bottom might be. Uh, hopefully it is somewhere now and over the next couple of months. And then we'll, we'll see a general return, not just an alkane, but a general return back into the resources sector. You're an Australian-based company, but you do trade on the prestigious OTCQX exchange here in the U.S. We do, and certainly ANKLY is our, our trading ticker. Um, and, you know, we've certainly done that with the view to attracting the market in the U.S. to invest in the company if they don't want to come you know, via the international broking system that we have these days, but certainly that opportunity is there in the U.S. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, president of Alcane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine... 
You'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare Project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back. Thank you. For our new listeners, if you don't mind, give us a brief summary of Prophecy Platinum. Well, Prophecy Platinum is a development stage platinum palladium focused exploration development company. And we have two projects in Canada, a world-class scale open pitable deposit up in the Yukon called Wellgreen, and then a second project called Shakespeare that's located in the Sudbury Mining District, which is the largest regional producing area in North America for platinum and palladium. My experience with platinum and palladium, and I've been covering them on and off for about 15 years now, relates directly to the automotive industry and catalytic converters. Do you see any change in that demand for catalytic converters as automobiles become more quote-unquote green? In terms of a change in demand relative to improving or increasing environmental requirements and regulations, over time, the trend has been towards a greater amount of platinum and palladium, which have the catalytic activity to basically eliminate the smog and the pollutants that are coming out of the exhaust. Over time, we've seen the quantity of those metals go up in order to meet higher standards. The industry has been able to achieve some reductions, so better efficiency of the use of those metals. But we would expect that the trend will continue, particularly in the developing world where pollution has become, particularly smog has become such an issue. China and India would be good examples where they are going to be starting to adopt more stringent standards, which would mean more catalytic converters, not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. And with the rapid increase in the market for automobiles anyways in those countries, already China is the same size market for automobiles as the United States. There's going to be, we believe, significant growth and increase in demand for particularly platinum and palladium. Even though many of us now see China as this great industrial power, compared to the U.S., there are fewer cars on the road per capita, much fewer. There's a great deal of area for growth in the automotive arena in China. Yeah, no, it's really striking. In fact, there was a a relatively recent report by Fidelity looking at automobile growth in various countries around the world. And they took a look at, in that study, some data that was put together by the World Bank that looked at the number of automobiles per 100 drivers in various countries. And as you can imagine, the United States was you know, near the top of that at about 90 vehicles per 100 drivers, and much of Europe was in the same area. And the reference line they were using was GDP per capita, so kind of a wealth factor. 
year. And what was striking is even though the Chinese market is as large in total vehicles as the United States, China has huge catch-up potential in terms of where they sit on that curve. Currently, you know, it was showing in that study about three cars per hundred drivers, and their GDP per capita would suggest more like 10 would be uh, if they were in trend with the other countries around the world based on GDP per capita. And so just the sheer catch-up to where they probably should be anyways, plus the growth potential as they become a more mature, developed economy is striking in terms of the number of vehicles that it's likely looking at. And because their environmental standards are increasing so much to deal with their smog and pollution issues, uh, I think this is going to be a huge boom for uh, platinum and palladium consumption, which is really the only application for catalytic converters for eliminating those pollutants. And car sales here in the U.S. have gone up around 12% recently, at least they have with Ford, so there's no shortage of demand here either. It's been surprising. I think the strength in North America, Europe has been weaker. Uh, They continue to mull around, and so more vehicles in Europe are diesel, and so that diesel engines require more platinum in their catalytic converter, so it's actually had an impact on the platinum market. It's been not as strong growth. Palladium has been by far the best performing metal in the mining space. Platinum was second to that, and it's been mostly held back by that sluggish European automobile sector. We're seeing some occasional spikes in volatility in the platinum and palladium prices. What do you attribute that to? Well, because of the concentration of production, particularly out of South Africa, about 75% of the world's platinum and palladium comes out of South Africa. And in fact, if you add up Southern Africa and Russia, it's over 90% of the world's production. There are a number of really structural features which make it a challenge for the South African mining industry to be able to maintain production. Production for platinum peaked in 2006 and for palladium mining production peaked in 2004 and it's been falling in both metals since that point. In fact, if we look back over the last six or seven years, production's been falling at two to three percent a year on average. And last year was a huge drop out of uh, South Africa. A lot of that's being driven by social unrest, strong labor unions who have been staging strikes and, and other events, and the sheer fact that the sector, because these mines down in South Africa are very deep, they're narrow horizons, which means your costs are high, you're, you're not really able to mechanize the mining. And because of the depth they're mining at a kilometer or a kilometer and a half depth typically in these mines. Their cost structure is very high. In fact, it's been estimated that 70% of the mining industry for platinum, which is probably primarily these deep South African mines, are not producing an ounce of platinum at their all-in cost of production. And what that effectively means is you've got a sector that's just not doing well companies are not going to be reinvesting into maintenance, into expansion. They're certainly not going to be developing new projects with that. And because of the inherent lag in the mining industry anyways, in terms of being able to bring new production, because it it takes so much capital and time to be able to bring new mines on, this could be setting up a situation very similar to what we saw in silver a few years ago, when the price of silver was around $5 an ounce, and the producers were not making money and not reinvesting in production. I think that's around the time that Warren Buffett took that huge stake in physical silver. And sure enough, a few years later, we saw that lack of reinvestment in the sector as demand continued to grow, which it typically does in these industrial metals over time with population growth and industrialization in the third world. We saw the silver price rise to the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and eventually hit $50 an ounce uh, before backing off a bit. Now it's currently in the $20 to $30 range. But we could see a similar development in platinum and palladium because of the falling production and increasing demand that we're seeing currently. 
currently. And so we're seeing more and more investors shift their strategy into platinum and palladium, correct? Yeah, I think a lot of people are they're cautious on gold. They've seen the correction in gold. I think that's uh, shaken some investors a bit. Gold may take a little while to further consolidate before moving up. A lot of interest has shifted to platinum and palladium because the fundamentals are so much stronger because they are a combination of industrial and investment use, but dominantly industrial and particularly the single largest use for both platinum and palladium is catalytic converters, which is such a strong growth market. Well, with production costs of near $1,700 an ounce in South Africa and a spot price of near $1,500 an ounce, are the majors turning to the politically stable and economically more friendly Canadian Yukon? Yeah, there's no question that major producers are going to have to be looking at where they can diversify their production if they've got these issues of labor and rising energy prices and social unrest in, in their key production areas. And Zimbabwe has also thrown in nationalization to, into the mix just for <laughs> good measure. The challenge has been that that's been the focus of the industry in that area, and that is a very enriched area. It's been one of the primary producers. There hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of those regions, Southern Africa and Russia. I think there will be, but this is a situation where right now where there's very few development stage projects even out there to be looked at. Ours up in the Yukon is one of the projects that with 7 million ounces, which is definitely world-class in scale already, it really stands out as a project that's unusual because it's also amenable to low-cost open pit mining production. Our cost structure is going to be much, much lower than these deep underground mines. And so, you know, we could have one of the lowest cost producers in the world. And the other benefit of open pit mining is that it's very scalable. You can build these projects at different scales and be able to increase production. And with a deposit this large and with highway access to the project and other infrastructure that's needed for development, this could be a a very promising project, certainly for our company, but also for larger companies that might be interested in looking at acquisitions in the space. With the Chinese buying up as much of the world's commodities, especially with regard to precious metals, base metals, rare earths, etc. In fact, a leading country in doing so, why wouldn't they be buying up what they need in platinum and palladium from you? Yeah, no, we're definitely hearing the same thing. In fact, we are hearing from Chinese groups that we're already in discussions with about the project, that they are concerned about security of supply of platinum and palladium. They recognize that South Africa is a problem in terms of being able to meet their needs. And with such a large automobile industry, they need a lot of metal. So we are already starting to see that interest in our projects. And because we're at a stage where we've still got a couple more years of work to do before we're being in a position to build them, we may see that interest express itself in investment in the company, financing of the project through to production. Those type of structures could be quite attractive. It tends to be that the groups that we're talking with on platinum and palladium are more the end users or even the groups that run the smelters rather than the mining companies at this point. But there are also opportunities, I think, for some of the major metal producers who may not have exposure to platinum and palladium. So some of the big companies, whether they be in Asia or elsewhere, also to look at projects of of significant scale. Well, the end users, from my experience, are doing all sorts of offtake deals now in Australia and Canada, everywhere. The large manufacturers in Asia, they're just going right to these junior mining companies. Yeah, the offtake structure can be really attractive for a company as well because it often means you'll see this group that wants the supply of metal come in and they may buy a percentage of the project and provide with their large balance sheets project financing and attractive interest rates. And so this can be really a win-win for both the development 
company ourselves as well as the company that's looking to secure supply because it kind of brings the strengths of both groups to the table. The experience and expertise in mining and development on the one side with the project asset and the need for the capital to build these projects which can be fairly capital intensive on the other side. So it's a really nice structure that works kind of bringing both the people that need the metal along with the groups that have the metal in these deposits to the table at the same time. I'm looking at an article, a Sprott's Thoughts article that was forwarded to me and the title of this article is called The Dire State of Platinum and Palladium Miners by David Franklin and in this article the phrase perfect storm was used and I think he was referencing the political issues we were talking about in South Africa and Zimbabwe compared to the potential in North America. But the perfect storm is really bigger than that. It encompasses everything we discussed. At some point, it could all happen at once. Then what? Yeah, and the reality is that mining is the type of industry that you just can't build a new factory anywhere you want to, and you can't build that production capacity overnight. So if you have these events, and particularly in the article you referred to from Sprott, where they talk about the multiple areas, you know, the rising cost of labor, the rising cost of energy, the fact that they haven't reinvested into the energy grid in South Africa, and nationalization rumors, all of these factors build to have a situation where with so much production concentrated in that area, if you saw some of those mines shut down or major changes in the ability to reach production and maintain production from some of those mines, you could have radical price increases that could be really profound, and then companies outside of South Africa would likely see the equity market respond measurably because really it's the underlying value of the metal that drives the valuations typically in the mining stocks. We spoke about this earlier, but I, I want to circle back just a bit. When these offtake agreements take place for these metals, they, they tend to happen a few years before production begins, and then you're spoken for. It can happen pretty quick. Greg, do you think that will hypothetically be the case with your company? We have a number of options that we can look at for financing the project through the next couple of stages, but definitely offtake arrangements are very attractive. For a gold-only project, they're difficult because you're producing gold bars, but in a project that's platinum and palladium, it's also going to come along with other metals, typically, often copper and nickel, and, and in our case, cobalt as well. And so you've got underlying demand for those metals uh, from smelting groups. You've got the platinum and palladium itself. And so, uh, you know, a great structure with these offtake arrangements is bringing together the parties that want to secure supply of those metal concentrates and companies like ours. And it can be really a win-win scenario where you bring those deep pockets of those major industrial players to the table. It gives them exposure oftentimes to the success of the project. They often will buy a stake in the project itself. And it also gives the company access to the capital that they need to advance the project and bring it to production. Let's talk about how potentially undervalued your stock is and what you're doing to get the word out. Well, the entire sector has been going through a consolidation, Alice. I know you are aware for the last two and a half years, most of the equities hit kind of peaks sometime in 2010, 2011, and have been in a correction mode or consolidation mode along with the metals since that point. We're now at a point where this is one of the longest consolidations we've seen since the market lows for the metals in 1999 and 2001. And on a relative basis, if we take a look at the value of the metals mining company and the explorer developers, relative to the value of the metals today, we're at one of the lowest valuation points we've seen in the past decade or two. We're at the same levels on a relative value basis as 2008 and 2001. So this is truly one of those exceptional periods in time 
where investors who are interested in the space are able to buy names at very attractive rates, buy at times when others are selling, perhaps because they don't appreciate the overall dynamics of the sector and the need for these uh, fundamental metals as the world continues to develop. And it's one of the opportunities where high-quality names with good management teams and good assets in safe jurisdictions, I think, are going to be trading at significantly higher levels in the future. This is the kind of market, if we look at both 2008 as well as 2001, where once things start to change, they can move very, very rapidly. You know, effectively, Alice, I, I see the market today as mining companies and explorer developers such as ourselves are trading not at what the companies are worth based on their fundamentals. They're really kind of trading on what people can sell them for. And so it's more of a, a volume and liquidity-driven market where things are not being priced on value. When the market turns and we start to see companies once again trading on their fundamentals and their underlying you know, value of the assets, that's when we could see a radical shift and see it very quickly where these things start to get bid up significantly above the current level. And I wouldn't be surprised with this correction two and a half years already in the making if we might not be seeing that move uh, here in the near future. Certainly it appears that the GDX and the GDXJ, which are the U.S. listed gold miners index and the U.S. listed junior gold miners index, which includes silver and, and some platinum names, it appears that they may have hit their lows and we may actually be in a, uh, a position here where it's establishing a, a bottom and we may see this move uh, higher at some point in the near future. You mentioned big names, management teams, and I can think of a company with a big name and a big success story. Nova Gold. And one of the founders of that company is the person I'm speaking with right now. Nova Gold was a tremendous uh, success story. That was my, my first public company I was involved in as a co-founder coming out of having worked for Barrick Gold for the first part of my career. In that period, we acquired our assets in a very similar market. If you recall, we picked up our first major acquisition, the Donlin Creek Gold Mine in Alaska in 2001. And similar to what we're looking at with Prophecy Platinum, it was about a 10 million ounce gold deposit. So it was huge, world-class deposit. But the sector was out of favor. The mining companies were focusing on profitability. They were cutting back expiration costs. These are all the same patterns that we're seeing now, the same trends where the big companies are slashing budgets, slashing projects, putting projects on hold, focusing on profitability. This is setting up for the same kind of big move, I think, in years ahead, where because they're a depleting industry, as they mine their reserves, basically the life of their product goes away, they have to replace those reserves with new projects or expanded reserves around their existing mines. And so the demand for junior companies with high quality projects that can come into the portfolios of these big producers, it will return. And it'll come back probably like it has in past cycles in Avengers. And we'll see really a dramatic increase potentially in the valuations of these, of these companies as the big companies start to go out and acquire large projects that can be meaningful in their portfolio. This sounds very exciting, especially when you consider the need for automobiles will not decrease. It never has since automobiles were first introduced to the world. And the need for platinum and palladium will only increase as well. Yeah, we're quite excited. The entire team, we've all arrived uh, at Prophecy Platinum you know, six months ago after the board undertook a, an executive search. We're excited to basically be here. We think the op 
opportunity we have here is getting in at the ground levels very early days, but with something very tangible. It's got a resource. It's got a first engineering study. And we see all kinds of opportunities on the engineering front, on the exploration front. We've been acquiring shares uh, over the last six months since we've arrived. You'll see us continue to be building our position. We believe in being owner-builders, and we think this project and this company has an opportunity in a sector that's got fantastic fundamentals for the, the metals, platinum and palladium, to come to market with something really exciting. And this project, with its location in the Yukon, in our second project in, in Ontario, we think is, is the right type of project for an industry that's searching for projects outside of high political risk areas that can have scale and have attractive economics and low-cost operations. Greg, another great interview. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to having you back again soon on the program. Thanks a lot, Alice. We look forward to being back to update you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.